You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Simon. And we are now going to do the Logan's look that I was going to do last week. So this is the first half, actually it's the first two thirds of season 20, because it was only six stories and he's got four stories here, but I assume he's counting the five Doctors in season 20 as well. Okay. Okay. Arc of Infinity. Logan says, this story was good. I was surprised to see Tegan appear in episode two. We haven't had a companion leave before and then come back like Tegan did. I liked that Omega was back and it was good to be back on Gallifrey for the first time in a while. It was weird that the Doctor's friend Hedin was working for Omega and I did not expect him to be the member of the High Council who was a traitor. Score, seven out of ten. Arc of Infinity that everybody hates. Mm. Last time I watched that, I really enjoyed it, you know. I didn't mind it. snake dance I really liked this story I did not think that we would see the Mara again but I was glad to see it because the Mara is one of my favourite villains it was good that we had another person taken over by the Mara too as well as Tegan it was creepy when Ambrill wore the six faces of delusion hat I was wondering all story what the man in the desert with the crystal was doing I didn't realise that it would be dangerous when the doctor was bitten by the snake score Eight and a half out of ten. Mm, high scorer. <clears throat> now, bit of a fan favourite, Mordrin Undead. The story was good. It is a little bit weird that Turlow is trying to kill the Doctor and is now on board the TARDIS. It is strange that the Black Guardian is in the story but didn't do too much, even though we haven't really seen him very much before. It was good to see the Brigadier back. Haven't seen him for a long time. I liked that there was... Two different brigadiers. I didn't recognise straight away that they were both the same person. It was weird that Nyssa and Tegan became old and then became young in the TARDIS. The story was a bit confusing because there were a lot of things going on and it was hard to follow everything and to remember everything when things became important later in the story. Score, five and a half out of ten. Terminus. This story was okay. It was a bit boring how Tegan and Turlow were stuck under the floor for so long. The garm was weird because it looked like a bunch of different animals combined into one creature. I'm a bit disappointed that we haven't seen the Black Guardian as an actual villain in person yet. We have only seen him on a screen or in Turlow's head. I like Nyssa, so I'm a bit sad to see her go, but not as sad as I was when Adric left. Score, five and a half out of ten. So Mordrin Undead and Terminus got the same score. Yeah. <clears throat> but there you go. And that's uh, obviously from Adrian Sturrock and his little boy Logan. And that was Logan Look. Logan's look on the first half of season 20. I wonder what he'll make of the King's Demons. Mm. Actually, I wonder what he'll make of Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. I think when you're young, that might catch your imagination or it might bypass you. You might really like King's Demons, though. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see which way he goes on those. It's always fascinating to see what somebody else of a completely different generation thinks. Mm. 
Right. We are. I've got a couple of film reviews. I'll do those at the end. And have you seen anything since we last recorded? It's uh, only been a few days. I watched another Ghibli, but yeah, I'll talk about that. You watched fine. another Ghibli. Yeah, another Ghibli. All right. We are going to talk about. We're going to talk about some of the things that recurred as sort of mini story arcs, or even sometimes quite expanded ones, but not the ordinary story arc that you'd have each year in the modern series. So there's some things under Russell T. Davis and some things under Stephen Moffat. I mean, I've written down all sorts of things and I've actually done them in a sort of series of groups. Mm. So the first ones are the sort of monster mini arcs that Russell T. Davis did. For example, and the first one isn't really an important one, so it's not worth going into too much. But when the Paul Abbott episode fell through at the end of series one, Russell T. Davis quickly replaced it with another story and he brought the Slitheen back. Mm, so mm. actually you've got a sort of mini Slitheen story arc. And then, of course, they turn up twice in Sarah Jane Adventures as well. At least twice. I think it's just twice. I think so. Is it Revenge of the Slitheen and... From the start and end of series one, if mm, I recall yeah, correctly. Or maybe series two. But yeah. So the Slitheen are in um, Aliens of London and World War Three, And you think it's all over and done with. And then Ross T. Davis brings back Margaret because he'd enjoyed... Having, um, oh, the actor whose name escapes me. Uh, um, and. Oh, and. B- 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 <laughs> Badland. Yes, Annette, Annette Badland. Annette Badland, of course. That's it. Yes, of course. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> that's a problem when they don't do notes. <laughs> anyway, that's not really a story arc as such, but <clears throat> something that you never really got in the classic series, mm. or very rarely. You had a case of it slightly with Mike Yates but you never really got to see um, you know the after effects of when things happened. No, no it's, not, it's an interesting thought, the, the kind of aftershocks of previous stories mm. you know essentially she's left left on the planet after everything blows up and... So you actually get for once to see a sort of the aftershocks of a story mm. the things that are left behind the, the sort of stuff you never usually get. It's actually see. the clever thing about the Slitheen, though, this whole idea of them being a family and them being individuals. Oh, I always within like that. that. Mm. I think that's an underrated story, frankly. Mm. I think there are some problems with the second half, just blowing them up and hacking into the computer and yeah. getting Mickey to do it. I'm not sure that's. But there's also some great stuff in the second episode. Mm. But I think the idea and the execution of it is actually totally underrated. But it's good to see the Slitheen back, or just the one Slitheen, and it's good to see that it's a programme that's considering these things. So the next two, well, one of them, this is the thing. When Stephen Moffat was doing all this stuff with Matt Smith, people were saying, oh, Russell T. Davis would never have left storylines hanging on one year after another. When you had an arc with Russell T. Davis... You'd have the arc start in the first episode and it would end in the last episode. And that, of course, is rubbish. Because mm. Torchwood yeah. get mentioned in um, the last episode of Series 1, turn mm. up in the Christmas Invasion, mm. and then they're all across the whole of Series 2. 
And then they get their own spin-off series. So Torchwood, you find in things out about Torchwood for years and years, really. Mm. And this is all under Russell T. Davies. He did the Torchwood TV series. But the thing that I actually wanted to talk about was the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Now, the Dalek turns up in the episode Dalek. Mm. And that is kind of a self-contained episode. Except you know it's leading to something later on. So when the Daleks come back at the end of the first series, that is essentially part two of Dalek, the episode. And then... Right. Well, at the end... Are they connected? Well, they're sort of connected because the Dalek that... Destroys itself at the end of Dalek. Is the Dalek that escaped from the Time War. But then it turns out that... The Emperor Dalek escaped from the Time War too. Mm. So the em- well, so they're not connected in any other way other than one is setting up the ideas that you use mm. and then the other. Okay, yeah. But then after Bad Wolf, when you think all the Daleks have been destroyed, you then go to Army of... Uh, what's it called? Army, Army of Ghost. Ghosts and Cybermen. Yeah. Uh, Doomsday, Doomsday, yeah. With the Daleks versus the Cybermen. And suddenly... And this is, again, not strictly a sequel, but it's using the same ideas. Mm. Daleks that have escaped from the Time War. So the Dalek that escapes in Dalek literally just escapes. Goes spinning out across space or whatever and lands on Earth. Mm. But then you get to Doomsday and you find out that the Daleks have actually secreted this device, the Genesis Arc, Mm. in the void, in Mm. the vortex, the time vortex, when it comes out of the time vortex, you find it's got these army of Daleks in it, but it's also got these four Daleks, Sek and Thay and all the rest yeah, of ca- it. Yeah, ca- Dalek characters. Mm. Daleks and names. Yeah, yeah. And of course, then at the end of Doomsday, it's the same four Dalek characters who turn up in Daleks in Manhattan. Mm. And then in Daleks in Manhattan, obviously... Some of them get killed off. But then the following year, in um, Stolen Earth and Journey's End, Mm. one of them's there again, Mm. having escaped from the end of that story. Mm. So actually, throughout Russell T. Davis's era, all the Dalek stories are connected to each other Mm. and tell a continuing story across the entire four years. Yeah. So that's obviously entirely different from telling a self-contained. Arc. I mean, that's not. Yeah, you're right. That's not like a returning character. That's not like the master. You think he's died at the end of one episode and he just turns up in the next one. There is a no like say, he, a continuation. There's he no... has them escape. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> the uh, what are they call they're not called the Dalek paradigm. They're called something else. Um, there's a name. He gives them a name, doesn't he? The the cult yeah. of the cult of Scarrow. That's it. And at the end of each story, certain members of the cult of Scarrow escape and turn up in the next story. And the the, the criticism that Stephen Moffat had when he brought things back, you know, after a couple of years, was how are people supposed to remember? Mm. Well, you know, people who are watching Doctor Who continuously, week after week, year after year, as long as you remind them of who these people are, mm. they're going to remember. And it was the same with Ross never reliant. It was never really reliant on remembering what happened anyway, was it? Not as such. I think you were reliant... Not without <clears> much dif- distance. Well, one of the time. complaints about Moffat was Davros in um, 
the magician's mm. apprentice. Mm. And that, well, that cliffhanger just before the, um, you know, in the cold open on the first episode mm. is kind of reliant on you knowing the name Davros. Well, except, of course, Davros, four years earlier or whatever it is, had been in the most watched episode of Doctor Who of the four of four decades. It's so something. at the forefront of public knowledge anyway, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know, just comedians like Harry Hill will make a joke about Davros yeah, and yeah, assume yeah. that everyone knows who Davros is. And even if you don't, the episode explains who he is. Mm. And it's not reliant on you remembering what he did last time you saw him. No, you just know he's the creator of the Daleks. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but and then, but in the cult of Scaro, that kind of is reliant on you being aware of who the cult of Scaro are. Mm. So when the cult of Scaro turn up in Daleks in Manhattan, mm. you're kind of supposed to remember who they are, why they're named Daleks, what they're up to, and how they're different from regular Daleks. And then again, when they all turn up in the Stolen Earth you're kind of supposed to, or the one that turns up there alongside Davros, you're kind of supposed to remember who he is as well. Mm. And you're supposed to take it on board that Davros is the creator of the Daleks. At least in The Magician's Apprentice, they were telling a story about Davros in which Davros behaves consistently with being the creator mm. of the Daleks. Mm. Whereas in The Stolen Earth and Journey's End, Dalek... It's not. Is it Dalek Sek who survives it? I can't remember. It's Khan, isn't it? It's Khan who goes mm, crazy. Goes loopy, yeah. 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 So neither Khan... It always nor... makes me think of that gremlin in... There's one of the gremlins. He's in Gremlins 2 where his oh, eyes really? go all over the place and it's a bit oh, really? loopy. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> I just imagine if he's got two eyes, they're going all over the place. But, yes, but both Khan and Davros in Stolen Earth and... Journey's End are not behaving consistently with the way they had before. No. They're both prisoners of the other Daleks, in effect. Mm. Mm. So that was kind of a weird way of doing that. But <clears throat> what it really all boils down to is, here's Russell T. Davis telling discrete story arcs season by season, as well as having ongoing threads which carry on throughout. Another one of which is the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. So when he tells the story of the Cybermen on the alternative Earth, alternative Earth in the middle of um, series two, mm. that carries on into the story at the end of series two. Mm. But then because he set up the fact that this is parallel Earth, he's able to then use Cybermen falling through in the next Doctor as well. Mm. Mm. So he, with the Cybermen, continues coming back to this idea of these void ships and stuff falling through from the void. Mm. Although that doesn't really make a lot of sense because if it's on a parallel Earth, it's not going to be on the other side of the time vortex or whatever it is. Don't get me back onto that. Yeah. It's, it's, I still don't buy it. Yeah, The science isn't really... Uh, no, no. There, I, st but... I still don't buy the reasoning behind it, but... No, I don't mind that. So no, no, I understand. I understand the explanation of why it is, but I still don't quite understand why you would do it in story writing terms. I don't really. 
But anyway, let's not get back into that because I think we talked about this about three times. Well, yeah, but I think the most important thing was he wanted to have a parallel Earth because that's how he was going to get rid of Rose. Yeah, yeah. So he needed an excuse to have a parallel Earth story. Mm. So he just tied that together with the Cybermen. Mm. And then, of course, Stephen Moffat uses that later by saying, okay, whatever planet you're on, if you're humans, you're eventually going to turn into Cybermen, doesn't Mm. he? Mm. So... It, but again, which I think was Rusty Dose thinking anyway, wasn't it? That was the. Uh, it could have been. It certainly seemed to be the thinking behind Rise of the Cybermen. Mm. But I think that was whatever planet Earth you're on. Whereas with Stephen Moffat, it was just if you're a human humanoid mm. on a planet, chances it's, are this is going to happen. Yeah, part of evolution. Part of the cycle of evolution. Yeah. But I mean, the important thing is. Russell T. Davis has got these certain ideas underpinning his Doctor Who. It comes in at the start, and it's this is the Doctor who fought the Time War. And then you get David Tennant's Doctor, who looks a bit more happy-go-lucky, but pretty quickly turns into this sort of guilt-ridden mm. survivor. And, you know, there's all the big conversations with Martha in Gridlock and stuff like that. And it sort of carries on throughout the whole thing that he's this Time War survivor... But that's far from the only idea that Russell T. Davis keeps ticking over. And he keeps... There are certain things he'll come back to, not necessarily deliberately, that he's set up to come back to. And the next one is the Ood. Mm. And the Ood, he didn't set them up to come back to. He just had them as a one-off monster in the Satan Pit story and then realised he'd done them a terrible disservice, so decided to redress that by bringing them back. Mm. So when he brought them back the second time, he also needed something in that second story. Or he didn't need something in that second story, but he needed something somewhere in that season that would foreshadow what was going to happen with the Doctor and Donna at the end. And he decided that as the Ood were the kind of creature that you could perhaps imagine foreshadowing things with portents of Mm. doom and Mm. this kind of stuff something spiritual about them, maybe. He decided he would use the Ood to do it. And so then, when it comes to the actual regeneration and you get to the end of the Waters of Mars and the start of the end of time, they're both at the end of Waters of Mars and at the start of Waters of of Mars and the start of End of Time. Mm. So, again, there's a little window open there, a little continuity window that says... You know, you could have done the end of Waters of Mars and the start of End of Time without those scenes with the Ood. But if you're going to do scenes like that, which just help knit it all together a bit better, sort of explanations of what the Doctor's going through and where he is, then you might as well do it with the Ood because you've already set that up. So again, that's not an idea that he set out intending to do. Mm. But he's just a good writer of sort of and it's kind of soap opera y in that <clears throat> if you're gonna do a consistent universe then you've got to have consistent characters and themes even in terms of guests. Mm-hmm. I mean in something like Coronation Street or whatever, if they go slightly out of the street to go to I don't know what because I don't know I don't watch it but you can imagine them going off to a shopping centre or something Mm. and then six months a year two years later there'd be another episode where they're a shopping centre well they'd use the same shopping centre and the same shop Mm. and Mm. probably even the same 
shopkeepers, right? Mm. Essentially, this is the science fiction version of that. Mm. If you're going to come back to an idea, mm. like the... Um, New Earth. Yeah, New Earth is another one. And um, oh, what's it called? The Not the Jadoon, but the where the Dune turn up the second time in the Stolen Earth, mm. where the Doctor's looking for where the Earth's been hidden. Oh, the, the Shadow Proclamation. Shadow Proclamation, yeah. that's the word yeah. I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah, so all these ideas keep coming back. Yeah, face a bow. Mm. Oh, he's on the list. Oh, he's on, I was going to say he's on the list. As is Adam. <clears throat> mm. That's not really a story arc, but Adam turns up in one story and leaves in another. And Russell T, I think it was a bit of a mistake squeezing Adam into that first series. Because mm. I think, I like that first series, but I think adding Adam in as well as Mickey and as well as Captain Jack kind of squeezes things out a bit. Mm. Mm. means that first series is a bit too busy mm. with all these fellas that Rose is falling for. I mean, mm. in that first series, she's in love with the Doctor, she's in love with Mickey, she falls for Adam, and she falls for Captain Jack, right? Mm. It's all a bit too much. And Adam's the, probably the one who should have gone. But it tells an interesting story. And instead of telling it in a two-parter, it, tell it tells it in two discrete episodes. So, I mean, you could potentially have had Adam there for a run of three or four episodes if we'd done it in series two or series three or something like mm-hmm. that. Much like Martha turns up in series four. But again, it's interesting that Russell T. Davis is not saying, right, every story must be completely discreet and distinct from the one before it and the one after it, except for the arc stuff. He's saying, no, people are tuning in this week and next week and the week after. You're going to have an audience sitting there for the series. So why not have elements that carry on from one story to the next? And then we can dispense with them Mm. and it's gone. Well, except for when fans thought he was going to turn out to be that voice at the end of uh, Bad Wolf. (laughs) And it wasn't. But, you know, Adam turns up in one episode and we get a setup. And then the following week we get that resolved. Not in the way anybody expected it to be, necessarily. (laughs) But it's interesting that he's willing to do that. Because obviously then Stephen Moffat will do similar things later on. But then, of course, there's Mickey. Mm. Mickey gets a nice... um, He gets a nice sort of character arc across two series where he starts out as a real zero. Mm. Does the Doctor a favour in World War Three? essentially, saves the day to all intents and purposes, and the Doctor invites him aboard the TARDIS, mm. and he isn't ready. Mm. So that gets put off till Series 2. And obviously this was maybe Russell T. Davis's master plan anyway, as part of the whole, uh, what will we do to get rid of Rose when we do have to get rid of her then? <clears throat> which turns out to be the, you know, these parallel worlds. But yeah, Mickey gets, he gets a good character trajectory across the series where his character doesn't just grow and develop, but he grows and develops according to the things that are going on in the programme, mm. which in a science fiction series isn't necessarily always the case. Mm. Mm. You know, characters will often develop in science fiction series 
but they'll sort of develop in parallel yeah. rather than yeah. because of what's going on. No, no, it's a yeah, it's a very very strong thread that one actually. <clears throat> and then you get Captain Jack. Mm. So Captain Jack turns up at the end of series one, and he could have been left killed off at the end of series one. Mm. But I think. And this is obviously where Russell T. Davis is already starting to seed Torchwood because this is in the story where Torchwood first gets mentioned. So whether he's already thinking ahead to Captain Jack being a member of Torchwood, because at this point he must be aware that Doctor Who's going to be a big success. So perhaps he's already thinking about doing spin-offs. Mm, yeah. But the most interesting thing about Captain Jack, Jack maybe is the whole face of Bo thing. If you sort of disregard Torchwood for this conversation because I don't know whether Russell T Davis came up with those two characters entirely separately and I then, think so but I yeah. think so too yeah. but it's hard to say because at the time he's writing The Face of Bo the second time mm. Face of Bo just turns up in um the end, end of the world, yeah, and he—I don't think he even gets a line of dialogue in the no, end of the no, world. No, no, but it's one of those characters though. I, I warmed to him straight away. I loved the face of Bo for that, yeah, for that yeah. very moment. So whether he just brought it back because, well, he yeah, I was going to say he doesn't have a line of dialogue in the end of the world, so there's no reason mm. necessarily why he should come back. And I think, and Captain Jack is obviously in Russell T Davis's head already when he's writing The End of the World because he knows Captain Jack's going to be a character coming in at the end of the series. Mm. I'm just wondering whether as soon as he writes that character, because he knows what's going to happen to Captain Jack, he knows he's going to get killed and brought back to life as the whole bad wolf thing, because even though he may not have been aware yet of what he's doing quite with the bad wolf arc, he knows the story's going to finish with Rose essentially turning into a magic being and magicking things into death <laughs> and back to life. And if he's going to show her magicking the Daleks away, he needs to show her magicking something back to life as well for balance. Mm. So I think at the time he writes The End of the World, he already knows what's going to happen with Captain Jack, or at least to a certain degree. And when he brings Captain Jack back to life at the end of... Uh, the parting of the ways. We don't know then that he's immortal. No, there's nothing. No, to we just assume he's been brought back to life, and that's as it. a normal person. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's nothing to suggest there's anything more than that. So it's when he writes the face of Bo in um, Gridlock. Mm. Is it Gridlock? The last time? No, the last time. We see him... No, where do we see him? In he between? dies in Gridlock, doesn't he? No, it's New Earth is the one in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> when he writes the face of Bo in New Earth. I think he's already thinking, well, hang on, here's an immortal character, mm. essentially, and here's another immortal character, and there's no reason they shouldn't be the same immortal character, because one of them is immortal, you know, five billion years earlier than the other. Mm. So let's put two and two together and make Captain Jack the face of Bo. So when you get that line of dialogue from Captain Jack, at the end of um, uh, The Last of the Time Lords, yeah, yeah. where he says, oh, I grew up on the Bo's Peninsula and they called me the face of Bo. Mm. 
some people tend to disregard that and say, oh, it's a joke, it's not real. Mm. I think it's perfect. Mm. I think it's absolutely, totally suitable for both of those characters. Because by the time you do get the face of Bo, if you've been alive for five billion years, mm. chances are you would be a completely different person. I don't mean physically. Mm. So you wouldn't expect the face of Bo to have the same character no, as Captain so, Jack. They're kind of, so kind of disparate. I think that's probably why people say, oh, that doesn't quite work. <clears throat> because there is that big gap. There's nothing explained between the two. But It's five billion years, so yeah. why not? Yeah. yeah, it works for me. It works perfectly for me. Um, and then really you've got Martha turning up in series four, mm. which is a complete waste of time. Mm. She, I, I think this is one that he really messed up. So Martha's got this little mini arc in the ser- in the middle of series four, where she turns up and sticks around for a story, mm. but he only ha- so he brings her back in the middle of series four in the Santaran story, only to have her kidnapped and replicated. So throughout most of the Sontaran experiment, you've got this avatar of Martha mm. that's working for the Sontarans that isn't even Martha. So that character... It's kind of... It's, when she leaves the TARDIS, that really is the end of her story. Because yeah. she's... Because she said... Because she, she's come full circle. She yeah. said, you know what, I've worked out what it is I need to do and what I need to be. <clears throat> And that's the end of it. And then but it, we don't need to be shown that she's suddenly become this incredibly strong character. It's better if you don't. Well, well, no, <clears> because she's already, already shown she's become this strong character because yeah. she spent a year walk, walking the earth. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you say, it's. Um, but for the actress, mm. it's fine because she comes back and gets lots of stuff to do. Yeah. But for the character, it's terrible. Yeah. Because the character basically doesn't come back. The character's barely in the Sontaran one. It's all the Avatar Martha. Mm. <clears throat> so Martha comes back and barely gets to spend any time with the Doctor and with Donna. And then, at the end of that episode, Russell T. Davis realises that if he's doing the Doctor's Daughter in the next episode... Mm. He needs some, in order to get balance in the episode, he needs somebody to go off with the hash, the, the hash, the half, the fish, fish people. <laughs> yeah. So not the hash people. Yeah. That's a different episode altogether. Yeah. yeah. Well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> he, needs some, he needs somebody to go off with the half in yeah. order to sort of give balance. Otherwise, the end of that episode doesn't work where they mm. all come together. Mm. But he needs Donna to be with him and... Um, Jenny, in order to sort of be a mediator between the two characters. So he needs to bring a third character in. And so he sticks that episode right after the Sontaran one and has Martha saying, well, I'm, no, I'm not coming travelling with you again and then mm. getting trapped in the TARDIS for an episode. So again, she spends the whole of the Doctor's daughter entirely separated from the Doctor and Donna. Mm. So in when it comes down to it, Martha gets three episodes in series four where she barely gets to interact with the main characters at all. Mm. It's a ridiculous thing to do with the character, right? I mean, I can see why she's there in order to facilitate those stories, mm. but to bring her in just in those stories to facilitate those yeah, stories. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. She needed a further episode afterwards where she could actually kick back with the Doctor and Donna and get to know them, mm. <clears throat> get to know Donna, get to reacquaint herself with the Doctor 
gets approve herself. As it is, she gets pushed around in both episodes. In one, she's taken over by the Sontarans, mm. and in the other, she's pushed here, there, and everywhere around by the Hath. Mm. And I felt bad for Freema Adjuman in that, mm. because although she got some nice stuff to play, and some terrible stuff to play, it just felt very unfulfilling seeing her come back like that. Mm. And then finally, well, finally, the last one I've put on the list is just the four knocks. Because Russell T. Davis got well, into Well, before this... that, Martha, we see her briefly again, though, don't we? Yeah, but Still I was really like... just talking about the little arc she yeah, has yeah, in the yeah. middle of okay. the series. Well, mm. I know you don't want but, to talk but, about... But the following appearance is just re-establish what we already know. Well, then she gets married to Mickey. Because if there's two black characters, they have to marry each other, right? <laughs> I All didn't say work. that. All the good that. work that Russell T. Davis does at the start of series one. Yeah. With Mickey and Rose yeah. and not even commenting on race and just saying this is normality in 2005. Mm. Then for some reason he undoes that all at the end. Mm. Accidentally. I don't think he puts Mickey and Martha together deliberately and says the two black people have to get married. No, no. But it's the way it happens. It just looks so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> I was only going to bring up Four Knocks because I think Russell T. Davis is... I don't think he's a natural science fiction writer. And I think by the end of four years of doing Doctor Who, his science fiction ideas are kind of starting to elude him. Mm. So Four Knocks... We know David Tennant's going because we've had an announcement that he's going. Mm. We know that Doctor Who's taken a year off because we've had an announcement that Doctor Who's taken a year off and there's just going to be a handful of specials. Mm. And so he does this thing with the Ood. I don't know why he feels the need. I've said this many times. I don't know why he feels the need to foreshadow the Doctor Donna thing by having the Ood tell the Doctor and Donna that their song is ending soon, three episodes into a 13-episode run. Mm. That's like that's like telling an eight-year-old, you're going to die in 80 years, right? Mm. You've lived eight years, you've got another 70-odd to go. That is... What is that? Is it somebody saying, telling you near the start of a football match, who's going to who's going to win? Yeah, and sort you, of. And the only thing you've got to wait for is what the score is. Yeah. How or, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, mm. You don't you don't start preempting the end of something when you're that close to the start of it. Mm. But having done that, Russell T. Davis then gets into a habit of foreshadowing things simply by having spiritual characters such as the Ood come yeah. in and say something. Mm. So you get that woman on the bus, Planet of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There will be four knocks. I mean, I like. I do think Rusty Davis is really good as far as the symbolism and and looking for connections. Which I think Stephen Moffat does the same thing of seeing connections that you didn't realise were there. You know, it might be a case of happenstance, and they realise, oh, that's quite good. But the four knocks, you know, they did da 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 da. It's the same thing as the master, and it's the same thing as the theme tune. Yeah, mm. yeah, <clears throat> I love that. Yeah, I really like that because there's a poetry to that. But like you say, it's the timing. And it's how it's applied. Because again, that's the start of the specials, really. Mm. And then this four knocks thing becomes... Oh, yeah, yeah, like you say, it's it's 
so early on in the Dr. Donna series. Mm. And then there's still the specials afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, all, yeah. it's all a bit... Um, it all seems to be all about endings. It's all about... Yeah. yeah it's like it hardly climaxes. gives them time to get their mm. feet on the ground before mm. he's looking forward to how it's all going to end. Yeah, it's okay to foreshadow how things are going to end. Mm. But not really by having characters coming in and saying, it's about to end. Mm. You know, that doesn't work. Mm. You don't do that at the start of a story. You can do something at the start of a story, but not that. <laughs> it's crazy. Mind you, there we are. We were fans of ones where first story killed the Doctor. And then you spend the rest of the series trying to work out how he died. Yeah, but that's like a different thing. That's like setting up a puzzle. Mm. To just have somebody say, you're going to die in ten and a half episodes time mm. is just crazy. Mm. Yeah. So should we move on to Stephen Moffat? Go on then. Let's save the big one for last because I don't know whether how deeply we'll get into it. I don't think we'll get into it too deeply. Um, there are sort of various things. Under Matt Smith, most of it pretty much ties together. And we talked about Brian Williams a bit, but he's a, he's a character who comes in who we don't expect to see return because he's a one-off character. Mm. And as Chris Chibnall ends up writing various bits and pieces. So Chris Chibnall, during the space of that little first half of series seven has written the pond life thing before Well, you don't get Brian Williams mm. because obviously that was just five sort of 60 second excerpts of the lives of um, Amy and Rory. But I wonder if either a doing pond life is what gave him the impetus to bring Brian back in the power of three or the other way around, maybe doing the character of Brian is what gave him and Stephen Moffat the idea to do Pond Life. Because if you take Pond Life, dinosaurs on a spaceship, and I talked about this a bit, but I didn't talk about the two things at either end, uh, Power of Three, and then P.S., even though they didn't actually film P.S., but they did that little sort of animated thing for it. Mm. If you take that, across as a whole arc then all of a sudden Amy and Rory who you've not seen much of the home life of because essentially Amy and Rory have been travelling companions like in a sort of antithesis way to how Russell T Davis did it Stephen Moffat said well you've done the let's see the home lives every other week let's do it one where we don't mm. so with Amy and Rory you've not seen the home lives every week and then suddenly at the end, they throw in a whole half a season's worth where you don't see anything but their home lives, hardly. But anyway, I thought it was worth bringing up Brian Williams again, just to sort of go over how Pond Life and P.S. fit in. Mm. Shame Lee's not here, really. P.S. Mm. is probably his favourite episode of Doctor Who, I think. <laughs> then this unit, Russell T. Davis introduces unit. Unlike in the 70s, where UNIT were introduced because the producers already had the idea that the Doctor was going to be on Earth, and they thought, let's create this organisation so that when we do it, there's mm. already something there in place for him to be doing. Mm. When UNIT comes back in the modern series, unlike, say, when the Brigadier comes back in Mordred Undead, and then later on in Battlefield, and we get to see UNIT in Battlefield, and that's like a different unit that I hear in a one-off story, and I don't know whether we'd have seen them again. Possibly not. 
it was just a one-off thing, really. But when Unit come back under Russell T. Davis, he's already mentioned them in Aliens of London. They're one of the organisations that get drawn to the into the trap. Mm. So Unit are already spoken about in the series. Then he brings in Torchwood, which seems like an odd thing to do after he's already mentioned Unit, but nevertheless. So you've got Torchwood and Unit working sort of in parallel but separately. But then he decides, let's do Unit. So you do the Sontaran story and you've actually got a Unit story, which I thought some of it didn't quite work. Because the Doctor's antithesis... uh, Antithesis? The Doctor's... <clears throat> the Doctor's not happy with a military mind, as mm. we've seen many, many times, right? Mm. Yeah. And in the early 1970s, he comes up butting heads against the Brigadier once or twice because of the difference between the military mind and the Doctor's mind. Mm. And particularly, obviously, the first big example of that is at the end of the Silurians, which is like the second story of Season 7, but it's the third story that Unid have been in, and it's the fourth story that the Brigadier's been in. So you have time to establish all these things before you start showing the differences. Mm. You have to show... In order to show the differences, you have to show the similarities and you have to show them working together in order to show how they don't. So when Unit comes in, in the Sontaran two-parter and the Doctor starts spouting off about I don't like military and all this kind of stuff, it's too quick. Mm. It doesn't get time to establish Unit before the Doctor's bitching about them. Mm. So unit are kind of on the back foot as far as the, the audience. The other are thing concerned. is the, the whole Torchwood thing, because when Torchwood came in, I remember thinking, "Well, does this mean unit are out of a job?" Yeah, no. and I know in essence it's not the same thing, but and the two it can fills the same spot. It does, yeah, yeah. So it's, kind of when unit turned up, he's like, "Oh right, okay." So you don't need to have the two. Where were you, yeah, yeah. Where were you when Torchwood were doing all this stuff? Yeah, yeah. And where are Torchwood now? Hmm. Mm doesn't really make a lot of sense but there it is he decides to bring them back just as a one-off really although he then brings them back again in planet of the dead Mm. so they get a nice spot in planet of the dead and then stephen moffat decides to take that up not immediately but after a couple of years of stephen moffat he says okay because um and i think the thing that prompts it is when um Nicholas Courtney dies. Because mm. Nicholas Courtney, Russell T. Davis, I think, had tried to get him into Doctor Who and Nick Courtney wasn't well enough, or Stephen Moffat had. Either way, he hadn't been well enough to come back into Doctor Who. He'd managed to do that. Have you seen the Sarah Jane adventure that he's in? Uh, yeah, I think I have. If you have, you'll yeah. notice he's totally not mobile in that. Mm. He's been sort of helped around quite a lot. Mm. And you can tell he's not very well. Mm. Um, but I think but the way Stephen Moffat uses the fact that Nicholas Courtney died to give the Doctor that moment of gravity in The Wedding of River Song, mm. I wonder if that's what prompts him to bring Unit back by way of a sort of tribute. Yeah to the character Mm. because when unit do come back in is it the power of three the first time they come back trying to think off the top of my head it's the first one with it's the first one with kate isn't it with kate yeah so 
in Santaran's stratagem, you'd have the Doctor getting friendly with one of the troops from way lower down the order, mm. but rubbing no, uh, heads up against the, those further up until actually there's the victory and everybody's happy. But it's not a good story for Unit, really. Shows It shows a certain amount of depth to the organisation by allowing there to be one of the junior characters who gets quite a good part. But when they kill him off, and then when they don't bring any of the other characters back for the next the uh, Planet of the Dead, the next time they come back, it's it's almost like they're sort of wasting the idea. Mm. They don't know what to do There's with no the idea. Family. Yeah. So when Stephen Moffat does it, not only does he bring in Kate, mm. but also and Osgood doesn't turn up. It's not, no, Osgood's not in that one. She's in the one after that, isn't she? I think mm. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But he takes that character that um, Lee Thingamy did in um, Planet yeah. of the Dead. Yeah. And he says, okay, let's run with that idea. Mm. So Unit now has another scientific advisor, which is kind of a commentary on the programme itself and its fandom, but actually is a nice nod back to the 70s when the Doctor was the scientific advisor for Unit. Because what it's saying is, okay, we've brought Unit back and we're not using them as the same way as they were originally intended to be used, as in something that was consistent from one story to the next. But when they did that, they had this scientific advisor character, which obviously was the Doctor. So this is a nod of the head. By putting in somebody like Osgood and keeping that as a regular character, that's almost like saying, and don't forget units still exist when they're not in the series, Mm. which is not something... That the sort of appearances under Russell T. Davis were giving you the impression. Because if, when the organisation turns up, you know, within the space of 12 months, represented by completely different people, mm. it just looks like a completely different organisation. It's like the army. Yeah. Or something, yeah. So by bringing in Kate and Osgood, you're giving them continuity, mm. which gives them an off-screen life. Mm. And it's all part of this consistent universe. So Russell T. Davis did it really well in certain places with like Mickey mm. and then badly elsewhere with Unit. And I suppose Stephen Moffat does it well and does it badly in various places too. But I like what he's done with Unit in that he's made it feel like a real thing again. Mm. Like something that's consistent in Doctor Who. Um... There's not really an awful lot else to talk about with Stephen Moffat because so much stuff is tied into his arcs, mm. apart from the big thing and the monks. But, for example, the Zygons. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Zygons, I thought their story was told in the day of the Doctor. Mm. I thought it was left open-ended that way deliberately because it wasn't a story that needed a full stop on it. No. It was there to foreshadow what the Doctors would do about Gallifrey. Mm. So I don't think it needed any more of an ending than it did because I thought that ending, although it was ambiguous, yeah. as the audience, you knew what you were supposed to take from it. Mm. But they decided to go back anyway and underline the way that ended by showing you what happens afterwards. And the main thing about that is it's another good example of the series saying, well, everybody watched this story Everybody remembers these creatures. If they don't remember quite what happened, we'll remind them in the story and with the sort of pre-titles recap. Mm. 
But let's take something and again show you the aftermath, like with the Slitheen. Mm. So the Zygon two-parter in series nine is a bit like um, Boomtown in series one, mm. in that it's coming back to something that doesn't need coming back to, but that you know adds in a little more yeah, color. It's actually valid, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more than valid. Yeah, mm. they both tell decent stories in their own right, but mm. they also both make the earlier story better. Mm. For giving it more depth, mm. as it were. <clears throat> and then there's the great intelligence. It's worth talking a little bit about the great intelligence, because we didn't mention the great intelligence when we were talking about the other arcs. But the great intelligence turns up in the snowmen. Mm. <clears throat> and that was, of course, the big surprise in the snowmen, was that it was the great intelligence. Mm. And of course, this was when Stephen Moffat was supposed to have heard that the web of fear was coming back. So he writes right. it in. Okay, And he actually writes the he writes in The Snowmen as a prequel to The Web of Fear. Mm. And um, I'm not that, sure how well that threads. I think he must have known. Mm. I think it. Do you know what I mean, though? The, the connection, I, I didn't quite get that when I watched The Snowmen. Well, if you watch it, it again, he shows a tin with a map of the London. Oh, yeah, no, I remember seeing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. I know, it definitely. Foreshadows that, preempts that. Don't know how certainly would have been or not. Anyway, the the point is, in the Snowmen, you have the story of the Snowmen is based around Clara, really. But there's a space in this story for an amorphous being to uh, animate the Snowmen in order to have the threat in the story. <clears throat> And, um, you know, it could have been something entirely new. It could have been Mandragora. Mm. could have been the Black Guardian that we were talking about earlier, frankly. There's no particular reason why it didn't necessarily need to be. But he lands on the great intelligence, probably because there's talk of the web of fear coming back. Mm. Who knows? He lands on the great intelligence. He tells this story, and it looks like the story's finished there, and it's only leading to the Abominable Snowmen and um, the Web of Fear. But then, in the very next episode, the Great Intelligence turns up at the end. Mm. So at the end of The Bells of St. John, it turns out that the whole computer thing that was going on in that story is uh, something devised by the Great Intelligence. And then, of course, the Great Intelligence comes back to be the, um, the nemesis in the name of the Doctor. So I just thought it was worth bringing that up to show, because that was obviously deliberate. He obviously knew when he was writing The Snowmen that the next thing he was doing was The Bells of St. John and the great intelligence would be there again. So the way he ends The Snowmen, he makes it look like you're done with the great intelligence to help the surprise next time you see the great intelligence. And then, of course... He gets rid of the great intelligence altogether at the end of um, the name of the Doctor. I just thought it was a nice way of doing it. A nice way of wrong-footing the audience. Mm. When you've planned out a little arc like that to make it seem as if it's not going to happen. Then we get to the middle of Series 10 and there's a couple of things there. Mm. Obviously one is the monks. And we talked about the monks a lot when we did Series 10. And about the fact that we never really did get to know much about them. And I talked about the fact that I thought that was nice. 
Sometimes I think the explanations are a bit too prosaic. And sometimes these creatures are invading because of X reason or Y reason. It always boils down to the same thing in the end. I liked the ambiguity about the monks. Stephen Moffat's mother died during the middle of the making of those three stories, during the middle of the writing of those three stories. So they never got tied together as well as they should have been tied together. So it doesn't work really as a mini arc trilogy in the middle of the series because the consistencies between the stories aren't there. Hmm. And okay, you can't use what's happening off screen to excuse what's happening on screen because what's happening on screen is supposed to live or die by itself. Bad choice of words, sorry. But there it is. That's the reasons why it happened that way. And there we have it. And I think if you watch each of the episodes individually, Mm. each of the episodes actually works rather nicely. Mm. And it perhaps would have been better if they hadn't bothered putting the monks in and tying them together after all. I said this at the time. Yeah. But they did. But I think the episodes work well enough it's just that you don't have the consistencies in the monks Mm. so ultimately that's a failure Mm. but the other interesting thing there is the doctor's blindness which is another mini arc yeah yeah starts at the end of oxygen where jamie matheson apparently had written it into the script expecting it to be fixed at the end of the story as a temporary blindness Mm. of the kind that you'd often get in things like the brain of morbius Mm. and stephen moffat said to him I know we'll carry that on Mm. so you get that scene at the end of Oxygen where he's still blind Mm. which sets up Stephen Moffat is able to use that really well in Extremis and then it sets up the way he's able to topple the dominoes at the end of um, the pyramid at the end of the world Mm. so actually if the Monk trilogy is a very unsatisfactory sort of trilogy of stories in the middle of series 10 i think the blindness is a really satisfactory trilogy Mm. of stories in the middle of series 10 i think the monks themselves were quite an unsatisfactory foe anyway they just kind of of ran a bit thin yeah 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 Yeah, they're a very sort of standard monster Mm. um the other thing of course is river song um River Song's the kind of character you could probably do a whole episode going through the ins and outs of. But I don't think it's really necessary. No. I like the way Stephen Moffat writes her <laughs> in um, the library two-parter in series four as a mystery that's been previously explained off-screen at some point in the Doctor's <laughs> future. Mm. So it's in the past for her and in the future for him. And it's a mystery to us because we come into the story with him. But to her... It could so easily have been left. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It was was a self-contained mystery that doesn't need any further explanation because it kind of resolves itself within the story. Mm. But he does bring her back. He makes her Amy and Rory's daughter. And we talked about that. Um, a couple of weeks ago or before when we talked about Series 6. What's interesting then, and if, uh, on Series 6 there are those mini-episodes, one of which is um, overwritten by what happens on the TV series. 
I think what happens with River Song is more interesting after Series 6. So Series 6 is where you get the explanation for who and what she is. And then, and obviously we talked about these episodes when we reviewed them, the two that are more interesting are the name of the Doctor, where she comes back as like a false ghost Mm. in Star Wars terms. Mm. (laughs) And that seems like a natural goader for the character. So you've seen, by the time you get there, you've seen pretty much all the important stages of her life. But you started by seeing her die and turn into a data ghost in... um, So it's the library. Yeah, Yeah. or Forest of the Dead, the second half of that. So that seems like the end of the story that came at the beginning. But Name of the Doctor works as a nice little coda to that. Mm. In that she gets to be the character who knows everything, who's learned everything, who's matured once more, and in a way that's quite poignant because she's dead. Mm. So now the Doctor finally... Because the way it's set up in Silence of the Library is that all these things she knows about him, he hasn't learned a single one about her yet. Mm. So for her, it's the last time she's going to see him and for him, it's the first time he'll see her. Mm. So bringing her back as a a ghost in name of the Doctor gives her an extension to that where now she gets to meet a Doctor who does know all the things that she knew then. But the poignant thing is she's already dead. Mm. I thought that was a really lovely way to sort of put a full stop on that character. Mm. Of course, Stephen Moffat then brings her back once more. Yeah. Hadn't planned to, but giving, finding himself with this Christmas special to fill, thinks, oh, maybe we'll do the story that complements that by being the penultimate story. Mm. So he's done, he starts with the ultimate story and then ends with first the post-penultimate story and then the pre-penultimate story. But together, they make a nice little trilogy for that character Mm. in that the way she comes in the Husbands of River Song, she's all bravado and doesn't realise it's the Doctor and she's the River Song that we would see if we ever saw River Song when the Doctor's not around. Mm. But then she gets that beautifully sort of empathetic, bit at the end where she realises what's going on which is a beautiful compliment Mm. to the way her character was treated in the name of the Doctor so actually I think you know for all that River Song is throughout series 6 having her story explained the three stories that really were worth seeing with River Song Mm. are actually two that Probably Stephen Moffat never imagined he'd tell, no, no. even when he knew he was bringing the character back. Mm-hmm. But the River Song. Anything more to add? Any other things that you think we should talk about that I've missed? I mean, I went through, I didn't go through in any great depth. No, Amy's pregnancy we talked about before, didn't we? Yeah, when we talked about the Series 6 arc. Yeah. Um, no, I can't think of anything. So I'll just do a couple of quick film reviews then and we'll knock it on the head. Okay. Right, this week, and it's only a few days since we've recorded. I've gone through a lot of films in the last mm, week and a half. Mm, yeah. Right, two coming up from Arrow that are both coming out later in September. 
One of which is a Japanese film called Horrors of Malformed Men. Nice. Which is based on a short story by a guy who, um, his real name is Taro Hirai, but he um, writes, this 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 was based on a book by him. He's um, not the screenwriter, but he was the writer of the book that it was based on. But he adopted the name Edogawa Ranpo, Mm. which is... uh, well, I don't know what the word for Japanese is, like anglicised, but it's a Japanese version of Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> right, okay. So he styled himself as the Japanese Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. But actually, mostly, he wrote sort of detective... I, I believe he's mostly known for detective things with maybe a supernatural content. But Horrors of Malfour Man is about as odd and as weird and as unsettling as that title might imply it starts with a character in an insane asylum well actually it starts on a shot of a pair of breasts right because the director of the film is obviously rather fond of breasts so there's breasts throughout okay (laughs) it's one of those weird things and this was made in 1969 so you don't really expect it but It starts in an insane asylum and the main character is standing in this room surrounded by women who are all naked from the waist up. Right. They're all attacking him. Okay. And then, and we don't know it's an insane asylum until the guard, the Mm. nurse, whatever, comes in and starts, you know, settling the girls down with whips and whatever, gets the girls off him, gets him out of the room and says, now back to your room. He said, I should never have allowed you, you to wander around. I should have left you locked up in your cell. Right. So, you think it's going to be some sort of Freudian sexual thing, mm. where the story is going to concern, you know, something along the lines of vertigo or whatever, mm. or even something like, you know, latterly things like Basic Instinct, where it's about the main character working through their sexual predilections and anxieties and stuff in order to sort of come to terms with themselves. Mm. So that's what you think it's going to be, <laughs> but it isn't. <laughs> so then he escapes, meets this girl with whom he seems to have this bizarre connection, but she gets killed almost instantly. She works in a circus and he discovers he's the absolute spitting image of somebody else. And he also hears this girl singing this song that he's remembered from his childhood. So now he's got this, oh, so is there something going on between this person who's my double and this song? So you get some information off this girl before she gets killed about where all this might be taking place. Goes to the coast where he discovers that the person he's the spitting image of is this rich man's son who lives on this mansion on the coast. But the father, the one who earned the money, is now on this island off the coast, whittling the money away till there's almost nothing left. And the son dies. So this guy, who looks like the son, decides to take his place. So he robs the grave, takes the clothes off, the the clothes that they've swaddled the corpse in, dresses himself in them, and gets himself discovered, oh, look, I'm not dead after all. Right. 
Then discovers this other man was left-handed, so now he has to pretend to be left-handed. Oh, God. <laughs> <clears throat> but this is all done in a... Re- it sounds yeah. funny, but it's yeah. really freaky. Yeah. The whole thing is quite freaky. But this is before it even starts getting freaky. So then he inveigles his way into this guy's life, discovers he's sleeping with at least two women, so starts up relationships with these women. Mm. So you think it's back onto the sex thing. But then goes to the island to see what his father's up to. And his father, who's a hunchback, has decided that if the world looks down on hunchbacks, he's going to reverse that. So his father has been kidnapping people and taken to them to this island and has a team of surgeons there who are medically deforming these people so that the entire island will be made up of deformed people who are then supposed to go back to the mainland. Oh, I don't know. It all gets rather confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The last 40 minutes, unfortunately, is divided between just long, 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 torturously long shots of these people who've been surgically altered and the makeup on them is just not very good at all. Mm. And then long, 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 torturously long scenes of people explaining to each other the plot and what's going on. So it's extremely freaky in that Japanese way that you'll perhaps have seen in things like Audition. Mm. But um, sadly, it's not terribly good. No. But it's really freaky. If you like things that are going to freak you out and you want to watch something late at night in the dark by yourself that might freak you out. This will freak you out. Mm, mm. Has it got a reputation? Yeah, I think so. The company that released it in 1969 withdrew it from circulation and it was out of circulation for a couple of decades. Which builds up a mystique about it. Yeah. 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 And the nudity as well is... I mean, Japan was doing things like that before the West, I think, if I can remember from other things I've seen. But there is quite a lot of nudity in it for a film that was made in the 1960s. Sort of oddly so as well. Because mm. there's, I mean, there's stuff in there like there's a woman who freaks out and starts stabbing her own breasts right. and stuff like that. Mm. There's all kinds of weird and freaky stuff mm. like that in it. Mm. Yeah, I can't really recommend that though. I sort of recommend it. It's a nice transfer on the Blu-ray, though. Mm. The other one, also from Arrow, also coming out on the same day, not such a nice transfer on the Blu-ray, is the Pajama Girl case. Do you know what a giallo is? No. Right, that is essentially the Italian... You know, uh, Spaghetti Westerns are the Italian version of American pop fiction, Mm. the Western. So, giallo is same thing, but detective stories. Oh, okay. Right. So, essentially, it's spaghetti gumshoe, I called it in the review. <laughs> okay. But it's it's a genre that was prevalent in the... Was, I think it started in the 60s, it was prevalent in the 70s, and then kind of died out in the 80s. But this was when the slasher movie was coming to the fore. Mm. So... It sort of takes that sort of 40s gumshoe detective story thing, transposes it into the 1970s, 
at the time when, on the one hand, you had slasher movies. Mm. So ever since Night of the Living Dead, gore mm. became a realistic gore, as mm. opposed to the sort of hammer horror, blood-dripping fangs type gore. But realistic gore had become a thing. So you had zombie movies and cannibal movies that we talked about before. So the giallos, as well as being detective stories, would always have a realistic gore content. And the other thing they would have, some, the other sort of subgenre that sort of de- developed in exploitation cinema in the 60s and into the 70s, was softcore porn. So there's also a softcore porn content. So... In terms of that, in this, which is based on a true story, or inspired by a true story, because mm. they play rather fast and loose with the facts, inspired by a true story that took place in the 1930s in Australia, where a girl's corpse wearing yellow pyjamas turns up on the beach, and it is a long time before the police are able to put, put together who it is. And actually, since this film came out, there's been a book debunking the conclusions the detectives came to that uh, are in this film. So there's this mysterious girl turned up on a beach and um, the detectives, including Ray Milland, who's been in... Was he in Dial M for Murder? He's been in Hitchcock things. He's been in a lot of good things. Uh, yeah. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, wasn't he? Um, no. No, but other things. Yeah. Oh, I'm trying to think what he was... Okay, somewhere around that time. Anyway, anyway he's, I'll keep he's ancient in this. Yeah. But he's still... He's still Ray Milland. But, I mean, all the dialogue is dubbed on. Mm. Or you can watch it in Italian, which isn't a lot better. But, because, uh, I mean, it's it's set in Australia. Wasn't the original man with two heads, was he? Oh, he could have been. That's that yeah, I think he it? might have been, yeah. yeah. Anyway, he's a retired detective who comes in on this case. And the really interesting thing about this is that they show the detective story. Mm although really badly. The detective story is so badly written. They don't show any actual detecting coming on. They show them coming to conclusions, but they don't show how they get there and stuff like that. It's pretty shoddy. But at the same time, they're also telling the girl the story of this other woman who you think, they throw you a red herring at the start that this other woman knows the girl in the yellow pyjamas. So you think that what's happening is that the two stories are going to intertwine at the point where the detectives realise that this woman knew her and this will be how they find out who the girl in the yellow pyjamas is. That's not where it goes. So actually, it's done quite interestingly. But again, it's not well written because the way the two stories are set up to be told in parallel with each other, you really needed there to be parallels or ways in which the stories connect, mm. but they they don't they don't they don't come up with the parallels or the connections, so it's a wasted opportunity really. And this um, other story with this woman, it's got some really good actors in it actually. The three, it's about a woman who's got three men in her life and she can't say no to any of them. Ends up marrying one, but still seeing the other two. And you know it's going to be a tragedy from the start. The way it all sort of unravels towards the end makes sense on her side of the story. And that's fairly satisfying. But also some of it is just unintentionally hilarious. 
There's a bit where one of the characters, I'm not saying who, <laughs> dies and it's supposed to be really poignant. But he gets knocked over by a bus. And so in order to make it look like, because uh, these are all filmed dirt cheap, right? So there's no, they don't have the budget to do these things terribly well. So he just shows shots of this guy falling from about eight different angles that he then edits together in slow motion, but quite quickly to make it look like this nasty accident. But in one of them, this guy's shoe just suddenly flies off and you find yourself at the most poignant moment of the movie, pissing yourself laughing. And then <clears throat> right at the start <laughs> of the film, you learn that the girl who's found on the beach has apparently been gang raped. Mm. So you know from the setup of the film, and you know that it's got this sort of soft porn content, that you're going to see like group sex scene at the end of the film. Mm. But the group sex scene, again, is just ridiculously, unintentionally hilarious. So if you like this kind of thing, you'll probably like the fact that this has got a different way of you know a different narrative structure than is the norm and you'll probably enjoy it for all the things that you enjoy these things for but to be honest with you it's a terrible movie really <laughs> and entertaining if you can call it entertaining in spite of itself but yeah those are two films where i'd only recommend them if you're inclined to like them already mm. but couldn't really recommend them to uh, anybody who's not inclined towards freaky Japanese shit or Italian giallo. <laughs> right, I think it's time we knocked it on the head then. Oh no, mm. you've got something to talk about. Oh, only only very briefly is that I finally got round to watching Princess Mononoke, which is uh, Hayao Miyazaki's. One of the more famous ones. Yeah, which you think I would have got round to watching. I've watched bits and pieces of it before I never got around to sitting and just watching it properly and I did and uh, it was just it was amazing it was amazing not one of the stronger Ghibli films I don't think of the ones I've seen or put it this way if there was a kind of a top five then it would be more towards the bottom but I think from what I've heard people saying it's one of those that you come back to and you start seeing more in it but interestingly story-wise um, apparently it was much earlier on in uh is it predates my my uh, uh, predates Totoro, so it's before Miyazaki lightened up a bit about things. It's quite an old one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he uh, it's fairly dark and fairly um, kind of pessimistic about the human race and how we how we're very industrialized and how we work against nature. But it's interesting because you don't have a set you do have a protagonist but strangely princess mononoke isn't actually the main character oh, yeah. the, main, the main character is a boy i can't remember his, his name is he was kind of doomed from the start of the film in in some respects something happens to him where he gets this injury which he is told is going to kill him so he's got this uh kind of thing from the start where he actually doesn't he doesn't he, he throws himself into the action because he knows he's going to die anyway yeah yeah um but you've kind of got this industrial town who are creating all this iron and the whole thing starts off with this this uh, forest god, this warthog, has um, been shot 
using an iron bullet and the iron bullet's gone into the thing and infested it with an, an evil demon oh. and the demon goes on the prowl and the whole thing starts off and it's fairly it's fairly um i wouldn't say gory but the imagination is just incredible in it the animation is just off the scale and it's the whole thing to do with the balance between industrialization and nature and you've got man who isn't understanding that he's doing things to nature and you've got nature who's saying that all men are evil and at no point do you feel like there's good guys and bad guys? Mm-hmm. And it's not a kind of traditional story in that respect. So you've got this constant... T- and in the middle of it all, you've got the boy-male character and you've got Princess Mononoke, who's this human who's gone to live with the wolves and doesn't class herself as human anymore. Ah, yeah. So she classes them all as evil and then he starts to win her around and there's a bit of a love story. Um, but it's quite a long film as well, but uh, it's quite affecting and quite and immersive as well. And when you yeah. sit and watch it, you're not really thinking about anything else. So yes, thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly worth you know worth seeing if you haven't already. And if you can catch it on Channel Film Four, I think it's on. Oh, by the time this goes out, it may have already gone. But Film Four have been doing a whole season, and in theory, I think every single Ghibli movie is going to be on Film Four over the summer. Can you download the films that have been on film for from... No. Yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, I was, we were just before the podcast, we were talking about the, the, the fact that the Blu-rays hold their value. There isn't... A, yeah, you can't get them cheap. But probably your best bet is go to the library. Because I know our local library's got pretty much all of them, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, fair enough. Mm. Right, next week then. No idea what's happening. But we're actually starting to get close to Series 11 now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because um, oh yeah, <laughs> there's been all sorts going off this week as well, hasn't there? Which is not really worth talking about, because by the time this podcast goes out, news will certainly have dropped about various things. Mm. And we might know when it's going to be on. We'll just... We'll talk about that when the time comes, mm. if anything more is there to be said about it. Um, I will say one thing that I forgot to say last week. We were talking last week about the fuss about um, the time team in Doctor Who magazine. Oh, yeah, Talons. About Talons of Wing Chang. And one of the funniest things I read on Twitter, some guy on Twitter had said, yeah, they're being all PC about it. But if you look at it, one of them calls... Leela hot, so that guy's still got proper red blood running through his veins. Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. So I looked and I thought, hang on, and I looked again, and it turned out that this person who had described Leela as hot wasn't a guy at all, it was one of the girls on the time team. Mm. And on that note, I was JR and I was Simon, and we'll speak again soon. Yeah.